Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, my name is Stuart Miles, and welcome to the Pocket Podcast. We've long expected Apple to announce Macs based around its own processors, but when has always been the big question. Now, rumors have surfaced suggesting that we'll be hearing more about Apple's plans to potentially ditch Intel at the company's developer conference at the end of June. Pocalint's associate editor, Dan Grabham, is here to discuss what a move will mean for the users of the company's laptops and whether it's a good thing or not. Plus, former Microsoft Chief Envisioning Officer Dave Coplin joins me to talk about the future of working remotely and education in a post-coronavirus world. And finally, Pocalint Reviews editor Mike Lowe is here to give us his verdict on the Microsoft Surface Go 2 laptop. Should it be your on-the-go computer? But before we get to that, let's go back to you, Dan. What's the story with Apple? So um, we're talking about Macs potentially having ARM-based processors, the type of processors that we have in the iPad and the iPhone. Um, but they'll be Apple, Apple designed and developed, um, but using ARM designs like every mobile processor does. Um, but instead of running iPad OS as, as as iPads do now, it will run Mac OS, the Mac operating system, um, and it will it will presumably be some kind of some kind of laptop, pro- probably a a MacBook like um, either MacBook Air or the old MacBook, which has now been discontinued. So what's what's the benefit? Why would they want to do this? Well, the main benefit is the the app compatibility across both. Um, Mac and iPad and iPhone indeed um, you know they've been talking about apps moving to a sort of single code base for a while um, there's been a move to put iPad on iPad apps on the Mac um, with a program called Catalyst um, and we've seen we've seen this with some of the built-in um, Mac apps and we we, saw, we certainly saw this with the replacement apps like um, music um, that replaced iTunes um, in the last release of, of, of Mac OS and so, so it would be a lot easier for developers to develop for all Apple platforms in one go, basically. And I suppose on the other side, I suppose they've got more control over how how the process how the processor develops and moves forward. I, I think you know it feels to me sometimes with Intel that is the default go to for everybody. And if Intel has a delay or a hiccup, which we've seen over the last couple of years of, of them getting caught 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 out, that that then delays everybody else. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, they've they've had numerous delays to 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 their architectures over the last few years, um, and you know that 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 does mean it's the case for everyone. And Apple has probably got a bit fed up with that, to be honest. Um, in the same way, it, it you know it got fed up with with PowerPC fifteen years ago and moved to Intel. So um, yeah, it would give them a lot more control. Um, it would also mean that portable Macs could have cellular connectivity um, inside because they'd basically be like a like a, a Wi-Fi and cellular iPad inside. So there'd be a lot more possibilities. Uh, one interesting thing I think to note is that at the performance end, so we're talking about, say, the Mac Pro or the iMac Pro, um, it would be very unlikely, I feel, that um, Apple would move away from Intel at that that level. But, but certainly at the the kind of entry level um, ultra portable PC type segment, 
they they could definitely move to a to a to the, to doing their own chips for those. Now that's all the advantages: the long battery life, the more control over how they use the resources, the connectivity, being in control of their own destiny. I, you know, this all feels like yeah, this is going to happen. This is a done deal. Let's tick 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 tick. What are the what do you see as the potential downfalls here? That the, where where it could all suddenly come apart and go horribly wrong. Well, I think the the the, the main thing around this is is that the offering from Apple is already a little bit confused in terms of they're talking about the, you know, we've discussed it before on the podcast that the, the, the iPad pro is a, is a laptop replacement. They talk about, you know, it's the, your next computer. Um, and on the other side, they've got the MacBook air, which is a, a fantastic device. Um, and really they're, they're, they're competing a bit now and this would muddy the water still further. Um, it would also mean that in terms of, um, mac computers there would be sort of two camps if you see see what i mean um that doesn't mean that apps would run on one and not on the other because that um apple tends not to mess these things up and i think that would be that would be fairly seamless but in terms of um you know the offering for people as to what they should buy it would be confusing and certainly from what we've seen with qualcomm processors running on um on laptops performance hasn't been great so um, you know, they, they're ARM-based processes as well. So, so the, there will be a definite question as to whether these, these, these new devices could have the same performance as, say, a current MacBook Air entry-level device. Still to come, Mike gives us his verdict on the Microsoft Surface Go 2. Then it's a, it's a really decent device. It's just those, those tiny little differences you'll see, you know, when you're browsing and then you're kind of clicking on the closed window or something, you might get like a microsecond delay compared to a more powerful machine that you're used to. Once upon a time, Dave Coplin was the Chief Envisaging Officer for Microsoft, helping the company realise potential futures that technology had to offer. Now the founder of his own envisioning company, his ideas and understanding of how we use technology today and tomorrow are helping other companies around the world through his work and books. With working remotely and education going through fundamental changes thanks to the impact of the coronavirus pandemic, I sat down with the CEO to discuss how we can expect to work and learn in the future. I started by asking how one actually becomes a chief envisaging officer in the first place. The truth is, Stuart, and, and you'll remember this, um, uh, we made it up and we made it up as a Mickey take because uh, at the time I was working for Microsoft and uh, we were really struggling to get cut through because people perceived us as just wanting to push the next version of Office or, you know, the next version of Windows. And I always felt there was a greater story to tell about technology. And all my life I've been the quintessential technology evangelist, you know, the pragmatic optimist about look at the amazing things you could do. Not a gadget guy. So it's not about look at the features of this product. It's more about look at what this helps us do. So we invented this comedy uh, job title of the chief envisioning officer, knowing that our colleagues in the media would like, seriously, are you, what is that even about? Hmm. Uh, but then they would uh, contact us and we would, you know, have a chat with them. Uh, and the irony is, is what start out, started out as a joke um, is now my job title. I even set up a company off the back of it because the challenge for a lot of people is that they typically want to use technology to replicate the things that they've always done. So you'll get a new device and you use it to work in the way that you used to do. It's just the device might be quicker, um, you know, 
my job is to help people say, well, actually that device or this piece of technology enables you to do different things in different ways. So this concept of envisioning is really trying to get them to step back and think differently about their future. Um, and, and so it just, it seemed to me that that was a good title to stick with. And, and so far it's worked out. Now, one of the things that we're probably doing at the moment is having to adapt and change in a very different way to perhaps we believed we would be working. Um, you know, you're talking to friends, talking to colleagues, whatever. It's that sense of that everybody is suddenly having to learn new skills that they didn't know that they had or were capable of even 12 weeks ago. How has that changed your job? You know, we're talking, you know, people talk about algorithms changing because they're not, because we're not acting in the same way that we normally do and stuff like that. Has it massively changed the way that you have to think about where we were and what we're doing and, and, and the future beyond? Yeah, definitely, Stuart. And it's funny, um, I had a little sort of wobble about two or three weeks into lockdown. Uh, you know, I, I sort of I lost a lot of uh, confidence. And because what happened is I'd realized that, you know, for the last decade, I have been, you know, in some cases, literally screaming at organizations and sort of organizational culture to embrace remote working. I've been very vocal in the world of education saying we have to fundamentally change the role of technology in education, because we're kind of working mm -hmm. like Victorians, we're educating like we're Victorians, and you need to wake up to this. And, and then sort of three weeks into lockdown, and the kids are at home doing homeschooling or, and yeah. remote learning, and, and people who would never have sort of uh, worked from home are now working from home. And also, it, you know, even nuances, like people who would have been really happy on a conference call, but would never do a video call. Everybody's now doing all of those things. And I thought, oh my God, um, it's happened. Uh, what do I do now? And, right. and, and, you know, is the future here? And, and of course, the reality is that we've all been forced into this situation. And whilst we've learned amazing things about what the technology can do, the trick now is how do we make the best bits stick? And it's not an all or nothing. We're never going to go back to school or we never go back to the office. But it's more about what are the best bits of this way of working and the best bits of the old way of working? And how do we create that into the sort of our, our, our new way of working? And so certainly let's stick with remote working to begin with. How do you envision that future panning out then from what we've learned and, and going forward? Well, my biggest hope, and, and I know that this is a stretch, but if you think about traditionally, and, and this is obviously more about office work and knowledge workers. Um, so let's talk about that audience first. We can talk about others later on. Mostly, the, sort of the way I saw work happening is people would have this default approach to the working week. And it was typically Monday to Friday in the office. Friday, I'm going to work flexibly, i.e. work from home. And I always had a bit of a problem with that. You know, working from home on a Friday isn't actually flexible working. It's working at home on a Friday. And right. If we can do anything, the one thing I'd love to do is just to see that default flip. So my default position is I'm going to work from home unless I need to go to the office. So it would be great if we could just get people to make that change because so much of the you know, commuting we do is, is inefficient and also terrible for the planet. It's not very good for us, you know, in terms of it's very inefficient way of us working as well. And, and whilst it's difficult, you know, when the kids are home and you've had to build a home office and all that sort of stuff, if we get this blend right, then actually there's so many benefits that we can get. Yes, it changes the culture of, of how we work. But the crucial thing to remember is it's not a binary decision. It's not I'm never going to go into the office. Uh, it's about finding I'm only going to go into the office when I need to. So kind of almost treating the office as like a hub for uh, doing things like meetings or things like that, yeah. that you can't do at home, but otherwise everybody really starts working in, in their houses. Exactly. And, and, you know, we sort of have inherited this 
I, I keep coming back to this, you know, this Victorian definition of work. In in the olden days, you had to go to the office. Even, even at the beginning of my career, if I wanted to access the internet, I had to go to the office. Before yeah. then, if I wanted to access the technology of work, a typewriter or the filing cabinet or whatever, I had to go to the office. And here I we are in the 21st days. century. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> here we are in the 21st century. I've got a device in my pocket that gives me access to all of that. And yet still I'm stuck on the 722 into London, Monday to Thursday, to access all of the things that I could access from anywhere else on the planet. And that's just mad. And you know, there, there are all sorts of parts of human culture. You know, we like to be in a place of work, but we've got to stop seeing work as a destination. Work isn't somewhere you go. It's something that you do. And when you think about work as an activity in that context, that's when the technology enables us to have a much different approach to what we do in, in all aspects of our lives. And so that's the work side of things. If we look at the education side of things, how do you, you know, I've got kids, the homeschooling, you know, lots of people are doing that. Do you see do you see that that continuing do you do you think i mean you know we talk about work and education as a great collaborative opportunity to experience ideas that you know that serendipity moment how do you how do you envisage education going forward well there's a there's a couple of sort of ways to think about it the first is in the same way that we've had experience with remote working i think we've had the same experience at education and i'm talking less about the parents and the challenges of homeschooling and, and maintaining a job but more about the teachers who've been able to provide a good learning experience to students even though they're not physically in the classroom now again don't be fooled this isn't about a binary you know our kids are never going to go to school this is about there are things i can do with technology that are great experiences and enhance learning uh, i mean the kids don't need mm. to be in the class and then there are things where i need the kids to be at school i need them to have that social interaction and what i would love to happen and you can already see it happening in some schools with some teachers is that the the sort of the smart it's the wrong way of saying it really but the teachers who are able to understand the opportunity of technology are changing the way they think about learning and are really doubling down on the opportunity of technology so for example one of the best ways of using technology for remote working is not to manage by process so it's not about how many hours Stuart has worked this week is yeah. has Stuart achieved the outcome that we needed to to achieve in this time frame and what I've noticed anecdotally through my son and his school is there are teachers who are still trying to deliver a one adult to 30 kid experience you know on a teams or a zoom call and frankly that's just ridiculous and, and just doesn't work and then there are teachers who are thinking actually this is a different medium so I'm going to set the uh, students a task to complete this week uh, they have a you know a, a, a period of time in which to do it. And it might be the lesson time, or it might just be an elapsed period of time. And I'm going to make myself available for one-on-one -on -one coaching as and when required. Those are the teachers that are seeing the best results. And so, what we need going forward is we need those teachers to rise to the front and bring that out. There's a second part of this. For forever, we have excluded. Uh, technology from the concept of education and, and before you get upset with me what I mean by that is yes we've had technology at schools but technology at schools typically lives in the ICT suite and the only time yeah. we talk about technology is when we're learning about ICT well actually look at how we live our lives as adults 77% of adults would not want to be without access to a mobile device throughout their working and personal day uh, and yet 95% of schools actively ban smartphones from use in lessons. And whilst on one level, I get that because smartphones can be a bit distracting. 
what's one of the biggest skills, Stuart, that you and I have had to learn about mobile technology, which is when is it appropriate for us to use that? When is it appropriate for us to actually put it down and focus on what we're doing? We have neglected an opportunity to help our kids build a really healthy relationship with technology that enhances all learning, not just learning about technology. Now, the kids, I think, have just about got away with it uh, whilst we've been going through this lockdown. Wouldn't it be great if we could now, having had the experience of, of what we can do with technology and learning, seek to really get into, so what are we going to do to the kids to help them build a really brilliant relationship with technology such that if this ever happens again, we won't even blink because we know that we're, you know, our kids are ready, the teachers are ready, and we're all good to go. But it is fascinating. I mean, my young kids are kind of having to learn skills that I didn't learn until I was at university. That kind of ideology of self-study, self-learning, self-research and all those things, because, you know, the teachers are there through Zoom um, meeting, you know, teams and stuff like that. But they're not necessarily, you know, it's that sense of having to research. They're not sat in a classroom in that Victorian style, as, as you say. I, I think it's there's, there is a, a, a tendency to to see technology and screen time as something that's a bad thing. And, and it's trying to work out how to educate them to do that, to make that a reality, I suppose. Absolutely. And, and you know, what you're talking about there, I think underpins, you know, that there are some broad concepts that we have to change when we come to think about education. So you and I, Stuart, were uh, taught, we were educated in a world where knowledge was a scarce resource. If we wanted access to the world's knowledge, we had to be in a specific location and it was a place of study or a library. Well, actually, our kids walk around with access to every fact our society has ever known. What they don't have easy access to is the skills to know what to do with that knowledge. And so that's sort of the playful you know, thing I often do with audiences. You know, I'll ask them, you know, so who can tell me the date of the Battle of Hastings? And of course, everybody can tell me the date of the Battle of Hastings. They can tell me the year, right? And then yeah. I say, well okay what was the um what was the date of the battle of hastings and you know inevitably there's always a history nerd in the audience <laughs> and i'll get you know well it was the 14th of october and then so i'll go well what was the day of the week and typically nobody knows the answer and my sort of point is does it matter that you don't know the answer because what happens today uh, when somebody asks you a question that you don't know the answer to you don't say i don't know and that's the end of the conversation you say i don't know but give me a second i'll have a quick look and yep. you then will look it up. You will then make some decisions about whether you trust that information and you will provide your view of what the answer is to that question. Why are we not teaching our kids these skills? These are the crucial skills that they're going to require in their world of work. And so this is the opportunity now, uh, you know, to fundamentally change the process of learning. This isn't about learning facts anymore. It's about acquiring the skills to know what to do with the facts. It's like, you know, wisdom versus knowledge. That's what we should be looking at now. And this whole sort of concept of self-direction, and, and it, look, this doesn't work for younger age primary kids. I get that, but it bloody works for, for secondary age kids and, and, and beyond. So it's really sort of thinking about those things and really questioning ourselves about the things that we're teaching our kids today and really being honest about whether we think that they're truly relevant. Now, I know lots of people will be upset with me for saying that, but, and, 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 you know, we will, you know, we have to know the basics. It's not like, you know, if you look at the calculator example, I, I need to know which buttons to press. I need to understand the formula, but I don't need to do complicated long division sums in my head because I've got access to a device that's a million times better than I will ever be. And I'm always hmm. going to have access to that device. And, and, you know, some people will say, well, you know, what if the, what if the internet goes down or what if there's no electricity? Listen, if the internet goes down and there's no electricity, we've got bigger problems than being able yeah. to do long division sums in our head 
So one of the things that I was keen to ask you about uh, moving away from education is over the 30 years that you've been envisioning and, and imagining the future and trying to work out what we're going to be doing with it and stuff. Have you discovered anything or seen anything that we haven't yet got to, but you think that is that, you know, we should be doing? Um, I, only on a really broad level, Stuart, and I would and it's hard for us humans to do this, but we, we you know, we always look at the future and, and we are massively biased by our past. And I totally understand that. But sometimes the best bits of the future open up to us when we can let go of some of those things. So again, you know, we think about the future in a very linear way. It's a, it's a straight line and it's extrapolated from where we stand today uh, against where we were yesterday. And, and we look to the future and we think, well, this straight line is going to progress. Well, actually, the future is never a straight line. And especially in a digitally connected society, global society that we are today, because all of these things change. And so one of the things, if you're an organization or even if you're an individual, um, traditionally, you would be looking inside your industry and inside your organization at things to do. Sometimes you've got to look outside. And the example I often use is, you know, we've got people looking at driverless cars and have been for years. And mm. don't get me wrong, they're fantastic technology. But actually, if you look at what's helping else elsewhere in the world of drones you know i think the future of public transportation around the local area is as likely to be drones as it is to be driverless autonomous vehicles like cars uh, but the automotive industry doesn't really look at that because we've always had cars and we're always going to need cars well actually i'd be looking around what's happening else, elsewhere in the world and this trick to be able to you know disconnect the past just for a second just to open up well, what might be possible because the opportunity cost of not doing that is too great because we we need people to be thinking about never mind you know cars or drones i still want the startech transporter thanks very much um <laughs> and, and who's going to be thinking about that and, and i think you know for all of us if we want the best gift that technology can offer it really is to, to think first about well what could this do broadly before we say well how can this make what i do today better the original surface go released in 2018 was a super portable machine designed for getting bits and pieces done when on the go rather than trying to be an all-powerful Surface product. Sequel, aptly named Surface Go 2, see what they did there, offers a few nips and tucks in its design and bumps up the specs, but is it enough to still be useful and should you think about getting one? Pocalimp Reviews editor Mike Lowe joins us to tell us more. So Mike, what's your verdict? It's a cool little machine, actually, yeah. Um, depends how much you know about the Surface family, which is Microsoft's um, hardware division. They make a whole bunch of stuff and the the proper surface, like the the full-on hardcore version, is, is quite an expensive kind of tablet pretty much where you can add additionals onto it and make it into a laptop kind of replacement. Um, the Go is you know, a more portable, smaller version that doesn't nearly cram as much power into it, but ultimately is way more affordable. So it's really aiming to, I guess, kind of mobilize people to do more kind of lightweight stuff on the go, um, as per its name, obviously. Uh, and the sequel is not a massive difference, say, over the first one, frankly, but it has corrected a few little kind of issues that we have with the initial release a couple of years ago. And so is this normally when you hear about companies making a device that is sort of slightly less spec to you know, get that price point or get it in as this go option, it means that lots of shortcuts have been made. And actually, when you go to do anything sort of useful with it, it starts to struggle. Is, is that the case here? Uh, I think it depends on expectation. So it, it doesn't struggle. It's, it's powerful enough, but then, you know, it's not 
that powerful. Um, it's it's using an Intel Pentium Gold, which is you know right down the bottom end really. It's it's above Celeron, but it's not even into the the Core M or Core I kind of category. So it's not it's not purporting to be that kind of do everything kind of system. Um, it's I would say if if you were considering getting something like um, you know, Google Pixelbook or looking at a Chromebook or something where you're going to be streaming, browsing, emailing, doing, you know, all your kind of office application work, then that's what this is aiming to, to kind of fill in for. Um, and if you need more, then the range kind of extends further. So it, I don't really see it as a problem. I think it's just understanding what you expect to get from it. Um, I think that's the case for most makers, really. So, yeah, it's it's fine enough. It's fine enough and, and it lasts long enough Not when it's not doing too much that you're asking from it either. Now, there must be something you really don't like about it or think that they've got incredibly wrong. Is there is there any of those sort of things where you think, oh, why have they done this? Um, well, so the original one, it had you know, big, big bezels around the screen. The sequel, the main difference you, you basically get from it is the footprint of the device is identical but they've shrunk the bezel down. So that means the screen itself is actually bigger, but even still, it's still quite bezel You know, it's, they've done a good job of pushing it a bit further forward. But when you look at what some other makers are really kind of squeezing out of their, their design departments, say Dell with the XPS 13 as an example, um, bezel is kind of vanishing completely in other, other parts of the market. So it doesn't look dated as such, but it just doesn't look quite as, as modern in, in that dimension. And if you decided that this wasn't for you, what other devices should you consider in that same color that effectively does the same kind of thing? Um, like I was saying, if you were looking towards something like the Pixelbook Go, um, that's kind of a decent uh, little Chromebook alternative. Um, and you could, if you're totally leaning, not well, not leaning on Windows specifically, then obviously Apple's uh, iPad Air would be potentially a good option too and actually that brings me to the fact that when you buy a surface even though it's you know affordable or seemingly affordable all you're getting is the the bulk product you're getting the main screen it's a tablet with a really cool little kickstand but to actually use it like a laptop alternative you're going to have to buy a type cover which is going to add you know 125 quid i think it is on top of it um and if you want you can also buy the surface pen which is a, a stylus but again you're going to have to at the price so um it's it is affordable but it could rapidly be less affordable than it seems and the final question is this worth considering yeah definitely um if you pick the right one and don't expect too much um then it's a, it's a really decent device it's just those those tiny little differences you'll see you know when you're browsing and then you're kind of clicking on the closed window or something you might get like a microsecond delay compared to a more powerful machine that you're used to um, and obviously being that it's it's a machine that runs um, Windows Store, you can't really download like proper full fat apps. Um, but you probably wouldn't want to because it's not going to be powerful enough to run them anyway. So it's it's really destined to to deliver what it's designed to do, which is towards the kind of mid to lower end of the, the market, really. So yeah, it's I was pretty impressed. There's a few things that could improve, but there's always time for the third generation to sort some of those out. Well, that's it for this week's show. Thanks for listening. Until next time, pip pip. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.